Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together, for all of your kindness to us, for all of the promises that you have kept and will continue to keep for us. We thank you and pray that we would be encouraged by your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is our 11th week of studying God's covenants in a class that was supposed to be 12 weeks. So we, have, we actually have three more weeks, I think, uh, and then we'll, we will be done. I'm not going to do this, any, I'm not going to keep adding weeks, I don't think. Um, <clears throat> get up to 70 weeks, yeah. That'd be something. Remember that a divine covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. We've seen that remarkably clearly in the covenant with Abraham. And we've worked our way up now to God's covenant with Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is the clearest expression of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. You could easily say, all right, now catch this. You could easily say that the Abrahamic covenant is right at the center of the whole Bible. Right at the center of the whole Bible. Um, when the Lord Jesus comes, everyone says things like this. They say, this is God fulfilling his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. Now who said that? That's a direct quote. From Luke 1, that's Zechariah. That's what he says. Mary says the same thing in the Magnificat. Everyone, when Jesus comes, everyone automatically thinks, this is God keeping his promises to Abraham. Jesus coming is God keeping his promises to Abraham. That's right at the center of the Bible, okay? Last week we saw how God singled out this man Abram, that was his name originally, and started appearing to him in the person of Jesus Christ before his incarnation. And there are three chapters in Genesis that contain different elements of God's covenant with Abraham. We saw last week, chapter 12, where God makes initial promises to Abram to bless him, to make him a blessing, to give him a people and a place, descendants and land, and in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Chapter 15 was this covenant ceremony we looked at last week where the Lord again appears to Abram and he reiterates those promises from chapter 12 and he gives him assurance by enacting a covenant ceremony. This covenant ceremony, remember, consisted of killing animals, cutting them in half, laying them out, the parts opposite each other, in an aisle of death. Right? An aisle of death. Not the kind of thing you want to walk down, you know, when you're getting married. But it's an aisle like that where people walk, walk down. Actually, that's not, now this is a, I don't have time for this. There's a reason why you have both sides, one side of the family on one side, another on the other, and, and, and the people walking down the middle. This is not arbitrary. Okay? This, this all has actual meaning. All right. Normally, remember, the lesser of the two parties who were cutting a covenant would walk down the aisle of death and that signified the seriousness of this covenant oath. The curse of breaking the covenant is death. If I break the covenant, let this curse 
come on my head. That's, that's what the person walking between down the aisle of death is saying, right? And normally it's the lesser of the two parties who would take that death walk. But what happens in Genesis 15? The Lord, remember, he knocks Abram out, puts him in a deep sleep, and then the Lord himself, the one whom we now know to be Jesus, the Lord Jesus himself walks down the aisle of death vowing that if he doesn't keep his covenant with Abram, then he will be ripped in half. Or you could say he will pour out his blood. That's the significance of chapter 15 in this covenant ceremony. Now today we come to chapter 17, the covenant sign. He continues to deal with Abram. And God comes again to Abram and gives him a very physical, very permanent covenant sign. All right, let's look at it and we'll talk about it. This is chapter 17. We'll read through verses one to 14. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. Now this is, this word here, establish, this is not the word that's used earlier for initially making a covenant. What is that word, remember? Hmm? Cut. This is not the word for cutting the covenant. That happened in, in Genesis 15. Now he says, I'm going to establish it. That means I'm, I'm reiterating it, I'm strengthening it, I'm making it plain, making it strong. That's the word here. He's not making it, he's establishing it, making it firm. And then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. All right, that's the significance of the name Abraham. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." Here you see that this covenant is not with Abraham only, right? But over and over and over again, he says, this is with your descendants. And so at the heart of God's covenant promises is the promise to be in a relationship with Abraham, but not just Abraham, with Abraham and his descendants. I will be God to you and your descendants. That's the promise, all right? Keep going. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or is bought with money from any foreigner 
who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, there's all kinds of things we could talk about with Genesis uh, 17 that we do not have time for. We don't even begin to have time to talk about the implications of all this stuff. But there are several things we, we have to talk about. Let's start with this one. Number one, is God's covenant with Abraham conditional or unconditional? Now, why is that an important question? Well, this is an important question because, as I said at the beginning, the Abrahamic covenant is the clearest expression of what? Of the covenant of grace. The Abrahamic covenant is the clearest expression of the covenant of grace in what we call the Old Testament, all right? So how can this be an expression of the covenant of grace if there are conditions attached to it? Grace, by definition, means no conditions, right? Hmm, really? Hmm. Now, this same question will come up when we talk about the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant of grace, which is the new covenant in Christ. Is it conditional or unconditional, the new covenant? Thinking clearly about God's covenant with Abraham now will help us see clearly when we get to the new covenant. So why do we ask the question at all? What makes us wonder if the Abrahamic covenant is conditional or unconditional? Well, there are different theological systems that answer this question differently. And how you answer this question, it's kind of basic question, how you answer it flows downstream in very significant ways. It's like the, sp- the head of the spring, right? Everything that comes out of this is determined by how you answer this question. It's a really important question. So for example, dispensationalism says that the Abrahamic covenant is totally unconditional totally unconditional. And so, how does that work out? That works its way out into the doctrine of once saved, always saved. Now, follow me. I believe, and the doctrine of our church believes, that if you are, as we've been hearing in Romans 8, remember that chain in Romans 8? Right? Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. That chain can't be broken. You understand? No one can be two of those things or three of those things or four, you know. You're all or nothing. And so we believe in what's called the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints says God's people will persevere and ultimately persevere in faith and in obedience and ultimately be glorified, right? So you can't lose your salvation in that sense. But But once saved, always saved, disconnects ultimate salvation from any kind of work of God in you, okay? In other words, it doesn't matter what you do. There's just no connection whatsoever. All you have to do is say some words, believe something, 
even if it's just intellectual assent. So dispensationalism understands that both the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are completely unconditional. And that then is interpreted to mean that since God saves us by grace, that means we don't have to obey him. That when you say you're saved by grace, that means you don't have to obey God anymore. We, we only beca- obey because we want to. I mean, that's obviously a good thing and it's the ideal, but you don't technically have to obey God in any sense. That flows from this idea that this, that this covenant, like the Abrahamic covenant, is completely unconditional. In other words, in their way of thinking, grace removes obligation and duty. Now, does grace remove obligation and duty? Is that what we see in the new covenant? That when you're a part of the new covenant, no more obligation, no more duty? Is that what we see here in the Abrahamic covenant? Well, the fact is, the Abrahamic covenant is clearly conditional. All right, we've just read it. What are the conditions? Verse one, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. All right? That doesn't mean sinless perfection. I'll tell you what it means in a second. Verse nine, you shall keep my covenant. Verse 10, every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 14, an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So can we say that the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional? No, we have to say it's conditional. In order to keep this covenant, Abraham must walk before God in integrity, not perfection, but sincere, obedient faith. I believe that's what this means, walk before me and be blameless. Sincere, obedient faith and repentance. And in order to keep this covenant, Abraham and his descendants and his household must be circumcised. If any man is not circumcised, he himself will be circumcised from the covenant. That's exactly the language, right? He will be cut off from the covenant community. These words are not accidental. You understand? Yes. Yeah. Dispensationalism means this, yeah. but I don't understand it. Yeah. Good. <laughs> we don't have time to get more into that than I have, but yeah, I don't understand it either. I mean, I understand you have to kind of back up and think of the bigger picture of, of when people make theological decisions, there's, you always have to ask why. What was behind that? Okay, it's, these aren't just random, uh, disconnected from a bigger system. So that's my very short and, and probably unhelpful answer. All right. How can admi- an administration, here's the question, how can an administration of the covenant of grace be condi- have conditions? We're gonna get to the same question when we come to the new covenant. What would be, here's, here's a way to think about this. A little illustration that I read a version of this in a book. Um, what would be necessary for you to attend the Super Bowl a few weeks ago? What do you have to have to go to the Super Bowl? No, you don't need money. What do you need? You need a ticket. 
when you go to the Super Bowl, they're not looking in your bank account. They're not looking in your wallet. They're looking for one thing and one thing only. Do you have a ticket, right? If you don't have a ticket, you're not getting in. And so a ticket would be the necessary condition for getting into the game. No ticket, I don't care how much money you have, don't care who you are, it doesn't matter. The, the point is, do you have a ticket? Necessary condition. So picture yourself uh, having that ticket, sitting in the best seat at the Super Bowl, and the guy next to you says, hey, you have a ticket for the best seat in the Super Bowl. You must be a very special person. You must have a lot of money, right? And you say, yeah, I have the ticket, but no, I'm not a special at all. The ticket was a gift from my father that I did not deserve, right? I have the ticket, but the ticket was what? A gift. I can't get in without the ticket. And yet, the ticket is not, did not come out of my wealth, my specialness, right? Your ticket is a necessary condition for getting into the game, but it is not a meritorious condition. The condition itself was given to you freely and without you deserving it. Does that make sense? That's, that's, that's the nature of these kinds of conditions. There are absolutely conditions. What's the condition of the new covenant? Faith is the condition of the new covenant. If you don't believe, you will perish. But what? What is faith? It's the gift of God. You, you do not get in without it. But it's given to you. Right? This is wonderful. Uh, and we'll talk more about the implications of that when we get to the new covenant. Okay? So that's the, that's the answer. The Abrahamic covenant is conditional, but God himself gives the conditions. Now here's the second one. Second issue we have to talk about. What do covenant signs do? What do covenant signs do? Notice what he says in verses 9 to 11. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So you see clearly, plainly right here, circumcision is the sign of this covenant, right? Everyone sees that. So what does that mean? What is a covenant sign? What do covenant signs do? What do they not do? Well, so here's the question. What is a covenant sign? A covenant sign is a visible assurance of God's faithfulness. A covenant sign, even that word sign, right? A sign isn't the thing. <laughs> when you're coming into Bloomington and you see the sign for Bloomington, you don't stop there and You know, it's a, it's a, it's a sign. Um, your wedding ring, if you're married, is a sign. If you lose the wedding ring, you're not automatically somehow not married anymore. It's not the real thing, but it's a sign. So that's what covenant signs are. A covenant sign is a visible assurance of God's faithfulness. The signs of the covenant 
all function to reassure believers of the promises that God has made to them in the covenant. Now think about the other covenant sign that we've seen so far in the class. What is it? The rainbow. All right, Genesis 9. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. Right? The bow will be seen. Everybody sees it. Everybody sees it. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. And so every time it rains, all creation is to see God's battle bow hanging in the clouds and be assured that he will keep his promise. That's the point of that sign. We are to see the sign and remember what? The promise. See the sign, remember the promise. See, it's raining. Oh, oh yeah. Right? That's the point. It's raining. It's going to be the end of the world again. No, it's not. Oh, yeah. That's right. I remember. I see the sign. We need those kinds of things. And that's exactly what's going on here in Genesis 17 with the sign of circumcision. Abraham, here's a, here's a trick question. It's not really a trick question. What happens between um, Genesis 15 and Genesis 17? Genesis 16. <laughs> what happened? That's where Abraham fails, right? The failure of trying to bring about God's promise of descendants by siring Ishmael through Hagar. That's Genesis 16. He needed all the help he could get to fully grasp God's covenant promises. And it wasn't that he was totally faithless in Genesis 16, because he's still thinking, I'm gonna have descendants. And he believes that promise, right? He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and that didn't change, he believed God, but he starts getting all wobbly when it comes to how is this actually gonna happen? So it is a failure. It's a failure, right? This was not a, a good thing. And so then Genesis 17 comes along, or God comes along in Genesis 17. He needed all the help he could get to fully grasp God's covenant promises. He needed God's assurance that what he had promised he would most certainly carry out. And so God stoops down low to him and gives him a very physical, very permanent sign, okay? A sign that he will see every day in his own flesh. Even more permanent than the rainbow. Every day, like every moment of every day, it's in his flesh, he will see it. And that sign is a visible token that God will keep his promises. Now, what's the relationship between the covenant sign and the covenant itself? This is really interesting. What's the relationship between the covenant sign and the covenant itself? We'll go back to chapter 17, verse nine. Look at what it says. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations, this is my covenant, 
which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Look what he says. This is my covenant. Every male among you shall be circumcised. This is my covenant. Every male among you shall be circumcised. All right? The covenant, God himself speaks of the covenant as if it were the sign, and he speaks of the sign as if it were the covenant. So the covenant is the sign, the sign is the covenant. He speaks of them as if they're the same thing. That's how closely linked they are. And as a matter of fact, what is the way that this covenant is broken? Right? If a man refuses to be circumcised, or if a father refuses to circumcise his son, that uncircumcised man has broken the covenant and is cut off from his people. He's, he's broken the covenant by failing with what? The sign. That's how closely connected they are. So that's what a covenant sign is. And we'll talk about more about that in a minute. Uh, we'll keep that thought in your mind. That's how closely linked they are. This is what a covenant sign is. It is a visible token, a visible reminder, a visible assurance that God will keep his covenant promises. And the covenant sign is intimately connected to the covenant itself. Now, hold that. We'll come back to that. Here's another question. What does circumcision... Oh, sorry. Getting ahead of myself. Uh, Because we're talking about what covenant signs do. What do they not do? It's perfectly clear that covenant signs do not create a covenant relationship. Now think about this. This is very important. This is very, very important. Yeah. Well, but it does. But it does. (laughs) We'll get to that. No, no, we'll get to that. He keeps saying baptism doesn't save you. And it's like, yeah, but it does, because that's what Peter says. We'll get to that in a minute. Just hang on. Hang on. All right. (laughs) Covenant signs don't create the covenant relationship. Think about the rainbow. What's the order? God makes the covenant. Then he gives the sign, right? Think about circumcision. God made the covenant to Abraham back in chapter 15, and then he gives the sign of the covenant in chapter 17. That's the order. The relationship comes first. The covenant comes first. The sign points to something that already exists. Covenant signs do not effect a relationship. They reflect a relationship. Covenant signs don't create a relationship. They point to a relationship that already exists. And they all serve to remind us and to assure us of promises that God has already made. So this, you can see how this is different from sacramentalism. Sacraments and covenant signs, we're, all, we're, we're getting all into the same. You start talking about covenant signs, and you're going to start talking about the sacraments, which we will in a moment, baptism and the Lord's Supper. You can't not talk about that when you're talking about covenant signs. Um, in the Roman Catholic Church, you, you become... The, the, the covenant relationship is created by partaking of the sign. 
That's not how covenant signs work. In the Christian church, and by the Christian church, I don't mean capital C, capital C. <laughs> I guess they're both C's. I mean the, denom- the denomination that calls itself the Christian church, like Sherwood Oaks Christian Church, that, that branch of the church. They believe in, they have a sacramental view of baptism as well. You cannot go to heaven unless you're baptized. The baptism does something. It changes the relationship and creates a relationship instead of reflecting a relationship. This is very important. Now, okay, we'll come back to baptism here in a minute. Let's think about circumcision in particular. What does circumcision represent? What does it mean? What is it pointing to? What's the figure? First of all, circumcision symbolized both inclusion and exclusion from the covenant community. All right? It shows who's in and who's out. We saw this in verse 14. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So that's what happens if you don't, if you're not circumcised. Of course, if you are circumcised, you're visibly part of the people, the group, the community. Does that make sense? So to break it is to be removed from the community. To keep it is to be seen as a part of the community in a very visible way. So circumcision symbolized both the inclusion and the exclusion from the covenant community. If you don't... If you don't cut it off, you're cut off. That's, that's the imagery, right? Secondly, circumcision shows the need for spiritual cleansing. The need for spiritual cleansing. This, in the Old Testament, circumcision was never seen as a merely physical act. It has to do with God. So we say it has to do with the covenant community, and that's absolutely true, but it also has to do with God. It also is showing something about our need for cleansing from God that goes deeper than just something, a minor surgery, right? Deuteronomy 10, 16. Moses says, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Right? Circumcision should, should remind everybody of something else, a different kind of circumcision. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Again, you see descendants. This is what circumcision pointed to. Does that make sense? Jeremiah 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And so circumcision shows the need for spiritual cleansing. That's, that's the sign. That's part, that's part of what it's pointing to, Godward. You all with me? You see that? One more thing. Circumcision demonstrated God's intention to work with families. 
And so we've seen this already in chapter 17. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. They'll come out of you. Kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I'll give you and your descendants after you the land of your sojourning. So over and over and over and over and over again, fruitfulness, descendants, right? People coming out of you. Okay, this is why the sign is what it is. Think about all of these three things. We are, the men who are circumcised are part of the covenant community. If If they don't, then they themselves are cut off. It shows that they are, that there is a need for cleansing. My, I, something needs to happen to me. My heart needs to be circumcised. All right? And it has to do with descendants. That's why it is what it is. You understand what I'm saying? Do I have to be more specific? All right. Good. Because I don't like that. You understand. You all with me? You all know what circumcision is. Okay, great. Now, we can't talk about circumcision without talking about baptism. Okay? So, is there, in fact, a connection between circumcision and baptism? How do you answer that? Well, the first thing you have to do is, what does baptism symbolize? What is going on? What is the imagery? What does baptism itself symbolize? Scripture tells us, Romans 6, for example, 3 to 7. Look at this. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Think about this. Baptism works the same way circumcision did. It is a visible sign of a spiritual reality. Baptism shows that we need to be cleansed from our sins. You see that in Romans 6? And shows that we are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. In other words, I believe clearly baptism and circumcision as outward signs actually point to the same things. The need for cleansing, the need for death even, Right? We're, we're talking about blood in circumcision. The need for cleansing, the need for, for death, the need for newness of life. These outward visible signs are symbols of all of that. They're, and they, they both symbolize the same thing. Now we see that clearly in another place in the New Testament, and that's in Colossians 2. I think this is actually verse eight, starting in verse eight. In him, in Christ, you have been made complete 
and he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Notice the role of faith here, right? This isn't magic. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And so obviously here, the Apostle Paul is comparing spiritual circumcision and spiritual baptism. In other words, he's talking about, uh, when he says, you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, he's talking about the circumcision that is the real thing, not just the sign. But that's what the sign pointed to. You can't divorce them. The sign pointed to that. Right? And so he's comparing spiritual circumcision and, and spiritual baptism, and he can do that. Why? Because the external signs both point to the same spiritual realities. They both point to the same thing. Baptism is not some totally weird new thing that is disconnected from circumcision. It's pointing to the same, they're both pointing to the same spiritual reality. Okay? Remember, circumcision was always pointing to spiritual realities. Now, let's go one step further and look at 1 Peter 3. All right. Okay, 1 Peter 3.18. Now pay close attention. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Someone want to tell me what that means? We're not going to talk about what that means, but look, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Who's, who do we know is waiting uh, in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day? Those angels who abandoned their proper abode and went after strange flesh and yeah, we're getting weird again, but I didn't say it, he did. Okay. Keep reading. Corresponding to that, to the, to the ark and the water, baptism now saves you. Now, this is why you can't say baptism doesn't save you. If you say baptism doesn't save you, then someone opens up the Bible and says, yeah, but I'm sorry, it says baptism saves you. So you can't just say, no, baptism doesn't save you. You understand? You have, to, you have to explain what it means, but you, get, you can't just say, you can't just flatly deny that that's what it says. That's what it says. Okay. Baptism now saves you. 
not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. What in the world? How is it that baptism now saves you? Well, think about this. Actually, this, this is, I think, it was very helpful to me to think about this. Remember Genesis 17. Remember in Genesis 17 when God speaks of the covenant sign, how? As if it were the covenant. This is my covenant, be circumcised. It's the sign of the covenant. Well, which, you know, what's going on here? God speaks of the sign as if it were the, 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 the substance. He does it in Genesis 17, Peter does it here. Baptism, he speaks of the covenant sign baptism as if it were the covenant itself. But clearly he's not talking about the physical act of baptism. How do we know that? He's talking about baptism and he is talking about water and yet he says, but I'm not talking about the removal of dirt from the flesh, but I'm talking about what baptism points to, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. Does that make sense? He speaks about it in exactly the way, he speaks about baptism exactly, exactly the way God does speak about circumcision, as if they're the same thing. You know, the bottom line is Peter could never have been a good Roman Catholic. No. Peter could not have been a good pope. Very true. Very true. Okay. I had an extra page of notes and I'm already done and it's only 1044. So let's talk, all right? Any, what, what are the questions that you have about all of this? Any questions? Yes. No. Because the covenant, the, the covenant with Adam was the covenant of works, right? So that was absolutely conditioned on his obedience or broken by his disobedience. The covenant of grace is different. It's not like that. It's not like do this or else. And yet there are conditions. The, the difference is the conditions are there, but God actually gives them to us. He actually gives us the, so if the condition for the new covenant is faith, but the problem is, you know, Romans 3, there is no one who understands, there's no man who seeks for God. You cannot come to me, John 6, unless the Father who sent me draws you. That's the problem. So if anyone's gonna be in the new covenant, we have to be given the condition. That's what makes Romans 8 so wonderful. Okay, we actually are given the conditions by grace. So it's a covenant of works versus a covenant of grace. They're different. So baptism, you can see in a sense, I mean, that's the imagery that he uses here, right? Yeah, I'm sorry. Was the first baptism the, the, uh, the ark? In a sense, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the same thing happens again when the people of Israel crossed through the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses, Paul says. Right, that, that, that imagery comes up over and over again. 
Yes, sir. Yes, exactly. I mean, that is, that is the basis, one of the basis is for infant baptism. Yep. Oh, yeah. The meek will inherit the earth. Yes. Yeah. So the yeah the promise the land promise of the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in Christ, but it's the whole earth. Yep. Okay. Now we really have to be done. I've done my job and gone late. That's what I have to do. It's my job. All right. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your your word and for these promises. Let your word become clear to us, we pray, in all the implications of it, and help us to be faithful to live them out, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.